Welcome to the Control Alt Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hey, and welcome back again to Control Alt Azure. I'm Tobias Zimmergren, and I'm here again with Yusip Reune. What's up? Hey, Tobias, all good. Uh, we survived Easter, so it was a long weekend. We spent that at the summer cabin with the family and we drove back on, on a Monday. And usually when we come back home after a couple of days of, of being elsewhere, the kids, you know, they go to their rooms to play and whatnot. So the three-year-old and the 11-year-old, they went to the room and they decided, let's play the PlayStation because it's been five days since we last had a chance to play. And I did not think much of that. But five minutes later, they come upstairs, I'm fixing dinner, and, and the 11-year-old sort of goes, well, yeah, the PlayStation, there's an issue with that. I'm like, hold on, we just got the new PlayStation, it should work. I go downstairs, and what, what did I find? The TV that they're using is still working, but the whole screen is shattered. And I asked, so what happened here? Well, the three-year-old got super excited with one of the games, took the remote controller and <laughs> drew it through the TV. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> and I'm like, all righty then. So let's start browsing for a new TV then. <laughs> so, so you should put you should put him as a tester on your projects. <laughs> exactly. But, but the three-year-old, he was so excited, he didn't really get it. And of course, a three-year-old doesn't get that something broke. But today I got the new TV because I know the kids kids would complain too much if they don't have a TV with the And you gave the remote control to the three-year-old immediately. <laughs> Again, let's try with this one now. <laughs> so Easter went really well, but perhaps it was a bit more expensive than I anticipated because I had to get the new TV. But beyond that, everything good here. How about for you? So for me, I also survived Easter. I went on a bit more analog trip this time. Surprise, surprise, if you listen in, you might have heard me rant about going out into the woods in the wilderness. I went on a 60-kilometer hike during Easter. Uh, it was a solo hike. The family stayed at home, uh, did some different things because the weather was perhaps not optimal. So I was allowed to head out by myself. It was about zero degrees, so just at the freezing point. It was sunny when I headed out, so it was really nice, uh, comfortable. And then, you know, in the middle of the woods, I think I've walked about 35 kilometers. I am in the woods somewhere, uh, and, and the snow starts falling, and I think, this is cozy. And then the winds come, and the, the hail, and even more snow, and then it's an actual snowstorm. So I have to put up my, my tarp, my shelter, to protect myself from the wind and the, and the storm, and it was kind of cozy. So I did that and I, I cooked some beef stew in the woods uh, in the snowstorm. And then I took a nap while the storm kind of flew past. So 20, 30 minute nap in the, in the woods. And then I continued my journey. So that was uh, a total of two and a half days in, in the woods. It was pretty cool. So yeah, very analog. Uh, I took some pictures and videos. So if I at some point managed to get that into a single video file, I might uh, might share that. But it's a great way for me to uh, regain energy and, and kind of recoup now into spring and everything that comes with, with uh, you know, spring cleaning that we talked about in a previous episode. 
So ahead is summer and before summer, we have a ton of work to get done. And the time to do that is now. So these small, you know, bugging out into the forest here and there or getting on your bike or doing whatever kind of exercise you want. For me, this helps a lot. Um, so this was um, time well spent. And I was so excited when I came back. So I've convinced my entire family to go out with me next time. So we're now probably going to upgrade to a bigger family tent. Uh, so we can bring the entire family, including the four-year-old, uh, sorry, three-year-old and the four-month-old, perhaps not deep into the woods, but having the car close by in case something happens. But they're super excited to go out yeah, to explore the, the terrain with me. So that's pretty cool. That sounds fun. I, I think this past weekend, uh, we got the same snowstorm that you experienced in the woods. I was sitting indoors by the fireplace having a glass of red wine, and I figured Tobias is probably out there somewhere. I hope he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I survived. <laughs> yes, thankfully. So today in this episode, we will be talking about publishing with Azure AD application proxy. So let's first talk about the service itself. Do you know what it is? Have you used it ever? I know kind of what it is. I have not used it extensively. It is not something that we make use of internally today. So why don't you walk us through it and I'll shoot you some questions along the way. Sounds good. So Azure AD application proxy, at proxy, I, I've always felt it's more of an infra tool for IT pros perhaps who need to somehow build a reverse proxy in between whatever service you want to publish and make available for your users and the users. So something sitting in between there. And perhaps in the past, before we had the cloud and all the fancy things we have today, you would often build a proxy with, with a server software and you would sort of configure a lot of things in there. And I feel that app proxy is, is this sort of modern approach to build complex publishing solutions without needing to dive too deep into everything you don't really care about. And perhaps the idea I had for this episode is that we'll talk about a bit about the service itself, the licensing, of course, and then the use cases. And I've worked on two different projects recently with App Proxy. So let's highlight a few bits from here and there. So that, that probably gives a better understanding about the capabilities of Approxy. Licensing first, I know this is one of your favorite topics as always. And this is fairly easy. You need Azure AD Premium 1 or Premium 2 licensing for the admin to create and configure whatever you're about to publish with the application proxy. And then you need Azure AD Premium 1 or 2 licensing for all of those users who need to utilize any of the services that you're publishing through the proxy. So in essence, all users plus the admin doing the configuration need, need, need to have Azure AD P1 or P2 license. And I haven't really followed up too deeply uh, lately on the licensing things, but often I find that companies utilize the EMS license package. EMS E3 gives you P1 license and EMS E5 gives you the P2 license. So either one of those, and you're good to go with the application proxy for any production needs. Right. And, and you pay here per user who is actually using the proxy, not per user in your organization or your AAD, but, but the ones utilizing the service. 
Exactly. And how much you pay obviously depends on, on your license deals and agreements, but it's per month, it's a fixed fee. So this has nothing to do with how much you're actually using it. If you're deploying 15 services through app proxy, the price per user is still the same if you deploy just one. And often what I've found is that once you have the license, perhaps through EMS package, once you have the license, then you can start thinking and planning on what do we need to publish and not really worry about the license anymore because it covers a lot of other things in Azure as well. Application proxy is, is just one thing you get with the premium licenses. Okay. So in order to get started here, so what kind of service is this? What, what do I need to get this rolling? Do I just click a button or what is, what is required to get up and running with these kind of things? So the first thing you need, you need a service you want to somehow publish. And if you're thinking a small business, let's begin with the easy use cases. If you're thinking a small business, they might have a, a firewall that has some sort of a settings to perhaps do port forwarding, for example. So an internal service, we might be running on a virtual machine, and now we want to publish that over HTTPS to whatever external users. You don't really need a proxy for that. You, you just configure your, your lightweight firewall to allow traffic from this port to that internal IP address, and that's that. But the challenge is that if you want to add more security or if you want to publish multiple different services, then those lightweight firewalls often are not good enough. So what you're going to need is at least two instances of a software called App Proxy Gateway. And this is a free executable you download from the Azure portal and you need to, to make it highly available. And you deploy that in any of the networks where you have those services you plan on publishing. And each gateway instance can only belong to one connector group. And those connector groups are what you play around with, with, with the configuration in Azure portal. So each app that you plan on publishing is, is tied to a connector group. And each connector group then has one or more, more gateways that you have deployed on-premises. Right. So when do I need this? So I understand I can, I can spin up this VM with app proxy gateway. And like you say, you should have multiple gateways for high availability, which makes sense. You can set up your connector groups. And when, when would I want to do this? When do I, do you have like an example of use cases where I want to look into using this? So I kind of understand paint. So we can paint the picture for, for when this might fit into our business or not. So perhaps the most ideal use case is that you have an internal app that's not built for cloud consumption, for example. It doesn't support multi-factor authentication. It doesn't support Azure AD authentication. You cannot enforce any additional security boundaries. It's just an internal app, perhaps, perhaps accessible through HTTP, not HTTPS, and users rely on that. But now when the users are not at the office, they might not want to utilize a VPN or it's not possible currently. They would still need to access those apps. Often they are web apps and somehow you need to make the access possible for them. And I feel that the application proxy is ideal. If you, if you have any sort of a web app and you want to leverage capabilities from Azure AD, like enforcing 
a pre-authentication before we actually permit you to access the internal app or enforcing MFA first, even if the legacy app you have internally doesn't know anything about MFA. But one interesting bit here is that if you have an internal app and that internal app has a, a specific authentication model and you need to map that with Azure AD, you can do it in different ways, perhaps using SAML tokens, for example. And you can do all sorts of trickery with the single sign-on here to translate an existing Azure AD user to something else that the internal service understands. All right. Well, that makes sense. So to put this into a, a better perspective, do you have, have you used this in a real project? And if you did, how did you use it? Like, how did you, how did this solve the problems of that project? Normally when I, when I start with this, there, there's a specific need. And often you go by that you deploy the gateways first, you make sure they're connected. So the gateways open uh, a one-way HTTPS tunnel from the internal network to Azure. That way you can actually talk between the internal service and Azure. So when you start with something easy, perhaps you have a legacy Microsoft-based website in an internal network, and you know that, okay, this, this is something we need to publish. That's, that's just clicking next, next, next and testing. But one example, uh, let, let's dive a bit deeper in here and you need to pay attention because there's a couple of moving parts here. So let me explain what the setup is. I had a customer request that they have an internal BI tooling, BI server with dashboards and reports and whatnot that they used just internally. But now when nobody's at the office, they started hiring external BI specialists who would also need to configure and access this BI tooling software. But they didn't want to give them a new laptop so that they could open the specific VPN. So they somehow said, we'll just create a guest account for these external users in Azure AD. And by using those guest accounts, we'd like to use App Proxy to publish that internal BI tool for these specific external users. But we want to enforce MFA because there's sensitive data in here. And the tool is ClickSense. I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's of Swedish origin. At least the spelling makes it makes me think, think like it's coming from Sweden. Yeah, I recognize that from just outside of where I live. I, I yeah. see this company along the highway when I drive. Okay, so they have support for application proxy. And what I mean by support is that the ClickSense and the different services that Click has, uh, they've published the documentation of what do you need to configure on the Click side, because it's a different tool, and what do you need to configure on the Azure AD app proxy settings, and it should just work. So what I did, and this was about two years ago when we began with this one, what I did is I configured the gateways. And then I configured the app proxy side on Azure portal under Azure AD. And I figured, okay, this is done and we can have an early lunch and, and, and no problems. And what we did, we enforced uh, Azure AD pre-authentication and then magically it should map with the clicks and single sign-on tokens using SAML tokens. 
so that the external guest user authenticating against Azure Portal or sorry, Azure AD would then automatically be authenticated against Click, the, the service with its own built-in single sign-on. And it sort of worked. So the external user could access the service, but clicking on any button in, in the service, it would break everything. So I went through the guidance from Microsoft and we'll put the link in the show notes if you want to have a look at that. And I followed everything in there. There's a lot of small settings you have to configure, but all sorts of random issues. And then we went through all of the settings on the click side. I've never seen that configuration, but it's it reminds you a lot of the Oracle and IBM software if you've, if you've ever had a chance to work with those. And there's a lot of SAML metadata and manifests and certificates and whatnot. And it sort of worked, but not really. So we worked on this problem on and off for about 18 months. Why that long? Because we needed to open support queries to Microsoft and click, and you know how it goes. It takes weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, somebody from Microsoft came back to us and said, hold on, I think you're missing one point that you haven't done. And we were like, so what's the point we haven't done? You need to go on the ClickSense server and you need to export the local computer's trusted root authority cert, the whole chain, including the cert that we're using on the ClickSense side. That's a self-created one that Windows creates for you. And you need to import that to Azure AD proxy and the gateway server as well. So each component between the client and the server needs to have visibility on that self-created, self-signed certificate. And nowhere in the documentation does it state this. So we do this, it takes two minutes and magically it just works. <laughs> yeah, well that, that kind of sums up uh, any IT project, right? You, you yeah. kind of estimate this to be easy, but there's always a, a catch or there's always something you need to figure out. But I'm, I'm glad that you got it working. And, you know, after to, to take that project as an example, now you have managed to deploy it, you know, whether it took one day or 18 months, doesn't really matter. Now it's deployed, you can see the communication is working, you, you know, whatever users that need access to these systems can get access and, Maybe you're enforcing MFA and doing all these kind of cool things. Now what? Do you need to kind of maintain this as it's self-maintained? Do you need to upgrade or patch it? Or like what's the effort, um, you know, post-deployment? So you do this solution architecture and you get this up and running and, you know, either using templates or you click through it or you use PowerShell, I don't know. But when it's there and this is going to be accessible for the coming five years, is there something you need to do? Do you need to like keep an eye on something in order to know that this stays healthy? That's a good question. And I think perhaps the often overlooked thing here is that you need to look after the gateways because the gateways might be on dedicated servers and they might be Windows Server 2012s. So five years from now, you really need to update those. Thankfully, it's quite easy. You just spin up a new server, you deploy the gateway and that's that. You don't need to do anything else. But on the Azure side, 
not much you need to check for permissions uh, perhaps do access reviews for users do you still need access to this after two years that's a capability in azure ad i think it requires the p2 license so if you had have that use access reviews but beyond that nothing else is needed it's a connection it works i would perhaps think along the lines of having a site-to-site -site vpn connection like an ipsec tunnel between your on-premises and azure if it works great look after the logs every every now and then but beyond that you don't actively need to do something on a daily or a weekly basis to make sure that it works so that's a good example now do you have other examples which covers a different use case for this i, I think you mentioned that in, in passing at one point when we talked that you you were experimenting with something else where this might be a fit did you did you ever find a a fit for this service to help out in different projects so once i was done with the clicksense thing and i figured i can now put clicksense behind me after 18 months but also that i wouldn't continue working on Azure App Proxy projects that much. They, they are not that common. And perhaps one reason for that is that people don't know that the service exists. But also the other reason is that a lot of the times the internal applications that would be published are instead migrated to the cloud and used from there more natively. But one other uh, need that I did have, and this was just recently, there's a software called TeslaMate. And as the name suggests, it's, it's an open source project that runs on a bunch of Docker containers. And what it does is once you spin up the containers, it will ping your Tesla car. If you have multiple, it can ping all of them. And it will extract everything it can get from the REST APIs that the cars have. Meaning, how much battery do I have? Is it charging? What's the location of the car? What's the speed? And it uses Grafana, the, the open source uh, reporting engine, to give you a lot of statistics and estimates and, and future planning and whatnot. So I figured this would be nice to set up. So I set it up, it's four containers, and it, it just runs. There's, there's nothing magical about that. But the default setup is HTTP. And mm -hmm. if you want to have HTTPS, there's Apache settings, there's a traffic HTTP reverse proxy. You need to get the Let's Encrypt certificates. I had a look at the instructions. I was like, this will take me two evenings just to debug and get running. And then I figured, let's try Azure AD application proxy. And exactly the same thing. Drop a gateway, connect that with the containers, publish to Azure AD, add a nice DNS name enforce mfa enforce azure ad authentication add conditional access that only people from these ip addresses can access it and it works all right so that i think that's a pretty good use case you have a local service or a service in-house or in, in your case you're running it in in your own apartment or house um whatever it is you want to access it you want to uh also enforced to security, so you kind of revert that over to uh, SSL instead of plain HTTP, which is good. So how, how long did that take to set up, just to put that into perspective with the other thing took 18 months, but that was obviously because of the, the kind of missing step that wasn't obvious. But now that you uh, set this up from ground up, uh, you know, what 
kind of time frames are we talking about? Are we talking about a couple of cup, cups of coffee, talking about an evening, or is it a, a multi-day project? This is exactly two cups of coffee and one broken TV. And, <laughs> and, and once, once you're done with this, it's super easy to test. And it helps if you have access to DNS. Because when you're configuring things, you want a nice, nice domain name for your service. If you can configure all of those in one sitting, it's super helpful. So I had this running, the TeslaMate container-based solution, for three or four weeks. And I was immensely happy. In the mornings, I would have a cup of coffee, come to my home office, open the graphics and say, okay, the car is in the garage and the amount of batteries, 57%. I didn't really need the info, but it felt important to know. But then one day after maybe three weeks, everything was still, still working nicely. I hop in the car and the, the, the make or, or, or the year of the car is 20, 2017, I think, or 2018. I hop in the car and in a Tesla, you often get all sorts of notifications. There's a new notification I've never seen before saying, hey, your 12 volt battery is not working correctly. So we will pause all updates to your car until you take this to the the garage and have somebody look after it, replace the battery. So perhaps what's important to highlight here is that the, the car has two batteries. It has the main battery, which, which makes the car go forward and backward. But then it has this additional 12-volt small battery. I think it's for, for getting it started or maintaining the, the crucial uh, control systems at all times. So I figured, well, okay, the car is maybe four years old, so perhaps it's just too old with the 12-volt battery. But then I started thinking, well, I started using the Tesla Mate, so perhaps there's something in there. I look at the logs, and the Tesla main container, there's a scheduled task that pings your car. It had been pinging the car every minute for the past three weeks. So the car never goes to sleep. It never gets rest. Yes, I'm here. Uh, yes, I'm here. Yes, I'm, I'm still here. here. <laughs> and no, I, I have a little less battery now than five minutes ago when you asked. So, mm-hmm. so I think this is a known issue with certain older Tesla models. And, and I tried this with a newer model and no, no such issue. It would ping it once per day or twice per day and the car would go to sleep. But the older car, it would never go to sleep. So I got the 12 volt battery replaced and it's not cheap, but it's done now. And then I shut down Tesla Mate for now to figure out that, okay, maybe in the future, if I upgrade to a newer model, I will try Tesla Mate again. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. So speaking of the APIs here with the Tesla, just out of curiosity, do you, do they also have anonymous APIs or APIs to discover vehicles? That would perhaps be a security risk. I'm just thinking, could you drain batteries of someone's car just by asking, asking the API continuously about something? That would be a great feature. No, for <laughs> the longest of times, uh, what they had is they have OAuth 2 based authentication. But the public, uh, that the client ID is always the same for all cars. Oh, but nice. then, but then you also need to need to push in your email address for your Tesla account, and you get that account when you acquire a car, and the password for that. So that's sort of the additional secret in there, and that worked for a number of years. But I think they they did update the the token 
uh, for the Tesla API. And somebody, again, extracted that and said, okay, here's the token so that you can talk with your car. But all the APIs they have, uh, they give a lot of information down to the smallest detail, like is the charging port open or closed? Is the left driver's window down just a little bit or not? So when you pull the data, just get the raw data, you get a payload of so much data, you don't know what to do with this. And perhaps that's the thing with Tesla main, that somebody has taken care of managing the data for you and creating those nice reports instead of giving you just the raw data. But again, Azure AD application proxy, that kept working all the time. So that, that was perfect, but the challenge was probably more with the car than with Tesla made this time around. All right. Is there something else we need to cover in this topic? No, I actually went through the, the docs from Microsoft on, on app proxy and there's not much beyond this. Obviously there's, there's tiny details if you do the SAML based single sign-on and, and, and stuff like this, but the configuration on Azure AD is fairly clean nowadays. And as long as you know the internal service you're planning on publishing, it, it gets easier. So I would definitely recommend have a look at App Proxy, try it out, and let us know how, how it ends up. Cool. Will do. And then I think we have the surprising question. So it's my turn to ask you. All right. Uh, Yes, and I, I try to keep this to something, something more realistic this time. So if you could instantly teleport to the past, any year, any decade, any century, but you couldn't come back to the present time, where would you go? And don't say two minutes ago or last week so that you could check the lottery numbers. But if you really had the chance to go to the 15th century, for example, where would you go and why? So it's a tricky question because you also say that I cannot come back, right? Yes. And I have my family here. So, yes. you know, there's a lot of places I would love to go. You know, for example, the first day of Bitcoin, <laughs> I would go and I would buy a million Bitcoin or, or mine a million Bitcoin. I, I would probably go back to the time of the dinosaurs just to check out the planet at that time. But if I cannot go back, that would kind of suck because I would probably be eaten in less than two minutes. Could be, could be. But perhaps if we expand this, if you could bring your family plus whoever else you'd like to have with you, would it change your decision? Possibly, yeah. But as with everything in our house, it's a democracy, so I wouldn't be able to make the decision <laughs> myself. But I would, I would like thinking about it, there's a lot of places historically I would be interested in going to, but again, not being able to come back, I would probably say go back perhaps five or 10 years, I would stay where I am uh, if I bring my family back those years, because we know a lot about what happens in society. We know a lot about what happens on the stock markets on, with cryptocurrencies and all these kind of things. And knowing that uh, we could help so many people, you know, reach a better life in, in so many ways. Just for example, understanding you would invest in some cryptocurrencies, you would invest in the right things on the stock market and you would have like the, the foresight in the coming five or 10 years uh, for exactly how it's gonna play out uh, in, in these technical landscapes, if you will. Um, and, and with the money you would make there, you could donate and set up charities and help so many people that you know cannot help themselves today, if you will. 
uh, like this one project that a, friend, a couple of friends of mine are doing, they're building uh, water wells in Ethiopia because they cannot do it themselves. So this is a pretty cool thing. I, I think that's how I would do it. You know, for egotistical reasons, there's uh, plenty of ways I would, uh, things I want, want to explore. I would go, you know, way back to, uh, to the Chinese dynasty and see how things were, you know, all these kind of crazy things. But that wouldn't really help anyone except for possibly curing my curiosity. And I would rather remain curious uh, about how things were and have an impact on possibly millions of people to, to make life easier and better for, for more people. So that was a long answer to a tricky question. Thank you. That's a good answer. Great answer. Uh, so if you, if you choose to go five or 10 years back, then when you get to yesterday of our present time, would you send me an email? You see, protect your TV. This is the time. <laughs> yeah. What if I would send you an email and say, don't ask me that question? Yeah. Would I be nullified? Would I not have traveled back and forth? Would, it, would we forget that it happened or would it not happen? Or is the question irrelevant to the implementation of time travel itself? I was actually thinking of this very same thing but then i did have a chance last year to watch on netflix there's the german series called dark oh yeah, yeah i've seen that and i i got so lost in who's that person again oh this is from 60 years ago don't, or don't meddle with time even yes if you can, exactly just don't do it <laughs> so i figured it's not up to me to decide but you just go with the flow if, if this was ever to happen yeah Alrighty, this was fun, as always, talking about Azure AD application proxy and time travel at the same time. Thank you again for joining us, and until next week. All right, see you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.